So welcome again, everyone, and uh, everyone online. Uh, now you know why I have you sit for the, the reading, right? Aren't you glad I didn't make you stand for that one? Um, well, uh, I don't know how well you resonate with that feeling, the feeling of being stuck. I kind of thinking about Ezekiel, got me thinking about being stuck, you know, where you look around at the problems you have and the things you're dealing with, and they get to feeling so absolutely overwhelming and insurmountable that you just, you don't even know if, if where to begin. And I, you know those days, right, when you look at everything that has to be done and everything you're supposed to be doing and all the expectations that come your way, and you just don't see a way out. Not at least an easy way. Now, it could be that there's too many things. It could be that it feels too complicated, to, that there's not a solution. But either way, it always feels outside of your control. So what do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Do you work longer? Right, that's one way. Double down. I got too many chores, so I'm going to work myself to the bone till they're all done. Uh, that's the type A answer. Do you push it all away and pretend it isn't there? That's the type B answer. <laughs> or or do, you do, do you go an unhealthy way? You start drinking more? Maybe I don't think about it? Pretend it's not happening? Turn on the TV and watch March Madness? Watch Fairly Dickinson knock off Peru, not Peru, Purdue. Peru. Yeah, what? knock off Purdue. I don't watch a whole lot of basketball, but that one was awesome. I always love watching the underdog win, right? Or do you go back into your room and cry? Hope no one sees. I know in COVID, in COVID, we were trying to get all this live streaming stuff done. If you can remember back then, I know sometimes I try to repress it. We were trying to get all this stuff done. Every Sunday I'd wake up, I'd dread it. I, I normally love worship, I dreaded it. Why? Because I knew I would go in and, and I was afraid something was going to not work. Something was going to go wrong. So, something was going to break. And then every Sunday, guess what happened? Something went wrong every single week. And it was like whack-a-mole. I'd think I'd fix one thing, and then it'd be the next thing. And then I'd go home, and I'd bury my head in my pillow and almost cry and go, Oh, Lord, I tried so hard to get it to work, and why did the audio drop again? And then I'd come in on Monday, and I'd open my email inbox. People mad at me. Why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you doing this? The other church down the road, theirs is working perfectly. I'm like, yeah, because they got five people paid $100,000 a year with PhDs in this stuff. I didn't, I'm not an AV tech. But so I'm sitting there every week, 10, 15 hours, watching YouTube videos, reading instruction manuals. Still couldn't get it. So I got down on my knees. It's moments like that. I got down on my knees, frustrated. And I just wanted to get there. And I was like, God, send me a sign. What should I do? And then I can hear God saying, well, Lars, you remember what I said in Luke. It is a vile and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. And I said, I don't care if you want to call me vile and adulterous. Just make my audio work. 
make my signal not drop. Well, it wasn't just one thing. We did figure it out. And we got what we got today, which has, been, which has worked pretty well most weeks. It will never be perfect, but I've given up on that expectation. But it's those moments when you're down, and you have that paradoxical problem of having to be really creative and innovative while at the same time you're exhausted and you can't think a creative thought at all. When, when it's hard to even imagine a possibility. When, you, you, you know, before you were dreaming and what's our five-year plan and where are we going to be a decade from now and now it's like, I, I just got to make it through Tuesday. I can't think of the future. I need a vision, God. That's when you need a vision. You need something to kind of shake up your thinking. Most of the time, I think, when we think of visions from God, right? when you think of getting a vision, what do you think of? You know, Aside from the corporate trainer who's telling you about you know, the new sort of, we're going to monetize our assets to reprogram our innovative something or other. You think of a vision, what's a vision? You know? Is it always some weird thing that you see when you're tripping out? You know, dude, those pink elephants keep spinning around and round. Took me a while, I never understood that children's movie well. <laughs> now I'm like, whoa. But, or do you think of visions as seeing as like predictions? I think we think of those sometimes as predictions, right? The, the vision is gonna show me what's gonna happen in the future. You know, it's going to show me where the box is hidden under the Vatican that is the name of Jesus' wife. But in the Bible, most of the time, when people have a vision, it's one of two things. It's either God shows up and, and gives this in, incredible, amazing thing, like God's really present. Like God will take the prophet right up to the throne room and there'll be lights and there'll be robes and the, it'll be awesome and the prophet will go home and go, ah. You know, those, those visions where you feel like God is really there and really present and you wake up and you've got this perfect peace. And then there's the other kind of vision which is designed to kind of jar your thinking, to, to throw you off, to, to get you to see problems and things in a new light. And how do you jar thinking? You show, us, you show something that you don't think could happen. Something that'll blow your mind. Something that defies all the regular rules of what you expect. That will defy all your expectations of the way things are. It's like getting your mind untrapped from the thinking that it's in. You see this in problem solving. It's kind of a problem solving thing sometimes, right? I don't think in churches we're always good at problem solving. It's sitting down and going, well, if this doesn't work, let's throw out a bunch of ideas. Well, how's problem solving? You, you, do the, you see this a lot in challenge courses. I'll use this, this example. Um, you know the challenge course is one where corporate takes you away for an entire weekend so that you can build synergy or something like that. And uh, the classic ones, we did this at camp, was the platform challenge. Can we get the platform up there? There we go. I was working hard with graphic designers again. <laughs> platform challenge, lots of variations on this. The basic gist is you got these two platforms, maybe about four by four, and they're not very high off the ground, you know, six, eight, eight inches, something like that. And the goal is to get everybody from one to the other. But they're just far enough away, you can't jump it, and they, they'll even give you a board or two. 
Let me give you a couple boards. But the board doesn't quite stretch it. And even with the board, you can, it's just a little hard to jump off it. So you got to problem solve. And you would see these groups. You get these groups together, and you put them on the board, and you're like, OK, here's your thing. you got to get everyone from this platform to that platform with these two boards. Oh, and it's lava, right? The floor is lava. And I've seen groups do this where, I mean, they practically were coming to blows, trying to figure out how to do this. Because you can't just put the two boards together. They fall in the middle, and then they burn because it's lava. And, and they will ar start arguing, and they'll bicker, and they'll fight, and they'll yell at each other. Literally, I've seen groups almost come to blows. I've seen people march off like, I don't care, it's lava. Ugh. Well, you got to start thinking of a different way, right? You got to start thinking outside, outside the proverbial box. And somebody will come along, the engineering student will come along and say, why don't you use a cantilever? And everybody goes, what's a cantilever? It's like, that's that thing Frank Lloyd Wright used so he didn't have to have pillars. Basically, it just means it juts out. But you got to have weight to hold it up. And so maybe if we all jump on the board at the same stand, or stand on at the same time, there'll be enough leverage to walk out. So here's, your, here's a solution. Can, there's your solution. See, we're leaving an Ikea box. You have everyone stand on the board, and that gives enough weight. Then you can lay the other one out there. And then that's enough to go across. And the next person weighs it down. Like I say, there's variations on it. But the problem is that you have to think of the problem in a different way. And if you just think of everything in the normal way you do it, you're never going to solve it. And so it's an exercise in becoming more of a, a dreamer, a fixer, than just being a realist. Because realistic thinking can get you stuck. Realistic thinking comes when you get to things like bridges. I always think of the realist, the realist thinker as the one who sits there when the bridge is all washed out. Right? There's a beautiful bridge in town, and a flood comes and it washes it out. And, uh, uh, and the, the realist looks at that washed out bridge and just thinks, oh, I remember when that, the old bridge was so wonderful. I drove my first 1972 Mustang something or other. I don't know what they called the 72 Mustangs. Oh, and I had my first kiss on that bridge. Don't tell my dad. Oh, and that bridge was so great. We'd go fishing off that bridge and it worked so slick. Well, the bridge is gone, dude. Bridge is gone. We got to make a new one. Oh, let's build it like it was before. That was a great bridge. Well, you can't. The banks are half gone. It's all waterlogged. You know, I can't rebuild the bridge. Oh, but uh, oh, but you know, they're like, well, why don't we try something else? That won't work. Uh, we tried before different ideas. That was the bridge that worked. The realist is the one who looks at it and says, you know what? There's a problem. It's not going to solve. There's nothing you can do. This is the way it is. And then along comes the dreamer, right? And the dreamer says, well, you know, maybe we can't rebuild the old bridge. Maybe we just build the road right down to the bottom. Then we just have a little bridge that goes across, like the Salt River Canyon. And the realist will say, ah, oh, that's stupid. Because the realist only sees the problems. And if you believe that the world works only in a certain way and that things are the way they are, then when you see a problem, then you're done. You're a dead end. So if I were to, here's how I would draw it. There we go. Because you see, what ends up happening is if you get to be, if you're an ultra-realist, you don't see 
solutions in the future, you see the problems, and the problems look like insurmountable, unchangeable things, and the only possible solution you can imagine is to look back to a glorious past. Don't tell me why I drew it as a castle. I had to draw it as something. The glorious past. And you can't see through it because you're a Marvel superhero who sees with pink lasers. But either way, right? I had to draw it some way. But that's when God comes along, and God gives this crazy vision that's saying, essentially, you're looking at the problem, I'm going to rearrange the whole bricks. I'm going to rearrange it all, and I'm going to show you it rearranged in such a crazy way that you go, whoa, I need to rethink this. And imagine then that on the other side, on the other side, instead of just a glory past the beautiful forest of possibilities, and now that God's rearranged your thinking, jarred you out, now you can kind of see possibilities. You start to dream. You can let go of the realism that says things can only be a certain way the way they are and the only good was ever in the past. When realism is broken, you stop feeling defeated and you get to feel excited again. But you have to break it down a little. This is why God comes in prophets and gives crazy visions about spinny wheels and bones walking and uh, Ezekiel has one where he eats a scroll. He has all sorts of fun ones. It's a fun book to read. And why does God give these crazy visions? The crazy visions is because the people of God were stuck in a thinking that said, our problems are insurmountable. We can't change our problems. We're stuck. We can't fix our social problems. We can't fix our political problems. We can't fix our economic problems. We're stuck. We can't do anything. And God's trying to tell the prophet, I think even you've gotten into this way of thinking. Let me show you that in my way of working in the world, the world works different. God has to show you that, the, that God doesn't work the world by human rules. Which brings me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel's this priest. He was actually, they think, one of the temple priests. And when the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, they took all the temple priests away. So he's sitting over in Babylon, what's now Iraq, and Jerusalem's being occupied. The temple's been sacked, but it's not destroyed quite yet. And the people are losing hope. And the people of Israel feel like, they're, I mean, there's nothing they can do. All the, all the money's gone. The priests are gone. They're under this captivity. You know, the empire seems untouchable. What can we do? And the people of God are losing hope. And they're giving up the idea that God could change things. And God's worry is if they give up hope, they'll just start worshiping Babylonian gods and they'll just fade away because why try to worship the God? He can't fix us at all. He can't help us. And they're becoming realistic and feeling defeated. And so God takes Ezekiel and he grabs him and he takes him to this valley of dry bones. Puts him in a valley of dry bones. And he says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel is non-committal. He's kind of like, well, Lord, you know. The correct answer should have been, if you say so, they will live. So, so God says, all right, I tell you to command them to live. And so he does. And he commands the bones to rise, to come to life. And in this vision, it's like they come together, every gory little detail worthy of a CSI episode. Every tendon and muscle and and thing, you just, I picture it's like a whole field of giant plasticized Chinese anatomy statues. And the Lord comes to Ezekiel. I, I, still, I still love that one guy, like the DJ down there. 
Everybody rise! Thumple, 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 thumple. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, this is an allegory. This is an allegory. He says, these bones, they're the people of Israel. They've given up hope. They don't think anything can be done. But they need to know that I, the Lord, I will give them new life. I will bring them home. And yeah, it's crazy, but it's designed to get Ezekiel to think differently, to think of the possibilities of what God can do to get them unstuck from realism, to keep them from thinking they'll be exiles and captives forever. Break the realism, fill them with imagination. This is such an important message today. I really believe it's an important message today because it can get, it can get to feeling really hard to be a church these days. You know, it's easy to remember when things were easier. And I think they honestly were easier at one point. We used to joke about old church planters. You'd run into these retired church planters from the 60s. They were like, oh, I know how to plant a church. I'm like, oh, what did you do? You bought a piece of land, you put up a sign that said church, and you watched people show up. Now I buy and put a piece of church, I knock on a door, and it's like, ooh, organized religion. I don't really believe in the cross, but get away from me. <laughs> did I ever tell you one time, I, I was just thinking about this. One time, I, I went down to the uh, cemetery down there on Oracle. I can always forget the name. Evergreen, Evergreen yes. I'm driving my forerunner. I've got my collar on. I'm driving my forerunner away from it. Go winding through the things. There's these two guys walking by. And younger, very skinny, did not look like they'd been living inside houses for a long time. Had bottles of something or other. And I'm just kind of, I'm watching them cut through the cemetery. And they drive by and I see one guy sees me and he goes, It's a priest! Run! And the two of them go bolting with their bottles, running full blast. I'm like, what do they think I'm going to do? <laughs> the power of Christ compels you! But this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. They don't even know me and they're running for cover. It can get real easy to look at that and remember back when my father was a pastor in the 60s and people would have been very respectful. They would have looked up to it. The church would have been in a, in a position, people would have took it, taken it seriously. It's a whole other world now, right? We can remember back to when that world was, when people were plentiful, when the youth group was huge, when, when, you know, when we, we were the place that the cool people came to. And now, we can, re and we can remember when it was easier and the culture wasn't so secular and they didn't make fun of you. And we didn't have endless technology upgrades to learn. And it can feel defeating. We can get stuck looking at the problems, not at the possibilities. God is the God of visions and possibilities, of new things. And it's worth remembering that the people did eventually come home. It took them 75 years, but they got home. And things were never the same, but they got home and they prospered for hundreds of years. God continues to give new visions and dreams of a new future. When we give up the, the help us give up that sense of realistic defeat, 
God opens our minds to new visions and new dreams, even in the midst of the worst despair. It is never over. We are never defeated. God gives the vision of new life. Amen.